<laughs> Church, we were born to be wild. We really were. Um, what you saw there, the first one was a pyrotechnic display at a Paul McCartney concert from uh, a number of years ago. And, and if anyone's ever been to a show like that, anybody ever been to a show like that? Ever been? I went to see Bon Jovi at the Milton Keynes Bowl once. It was like that. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And, and the second thing, I'm sure most of us have probably seen it on TV if you've not been able to be there, and that's the, the London Eye uh, at New Year's Eve, kind of just exploding into life. And it, it's kind of okay watching it on TV, isn't it? But I've been told that if you're there, it is. Have you, you been there? Were you there? Oh, it's, it's amazing, I've been told. Brilliant. Anybody else managed to get down to London and be there and be involved? Maybe one year you should maybe make a, a, a travel of it and just, just go down and check out and see what it's all about because apparently the atmosphere is electric. And there's a real sense of awe, isn't there, in those kind of, those kind of shows. But I guess I've got to ask the question, is why would McCartney and other big names like Bon Jovi um, <laughs> do stuff like this? Isn't there music enough? Isn't that enough for, for, for me and you? Or isn't just celebrating the new year in with a, a bottle of bubbly and a few friends enough? Why do we need and why do we do that? Why do we do that big scene? And the answer is because in all these performances, the organizers are looking for something more, something that will catch the attention of their audience, something that they'll remember. As you have, you know, seen the London, you remember that for the rest of your life, probably, that experience. And today we're, we're celebrating the day of Pentecost which for an early follower came to mean something more than just a, a Jewish festival. And if you all turn with me to the book of Acts, can you all turn to the book of Acts if you've got a Bible? Turn to chapter 2. Funnily enough, if you know the story, you'll be surprised that I'm going there. Not. So go to chapter 2, and, and in there we'll find God doing something more. So if you've all turned to it, I'll give yourselves just a a little while longer, and I'm going to read from the message translation, so it'll kind of tally up with what you're reading, but it'll be a little bit different. So with a load of people gathered together in one place, just like we are this morning, God puts on a, a little pyrotechnic display all of his own. So I'm going to read it, and you, you follow me the best you can in your translations. So it's Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, a gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. And then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks. And they started speaking a, in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. In some of the translations, you'll have it say, tongues of fire. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in that church service? Could you like, just put yourself there and to be in that church service? Imagine the surprise, right? That when you heard this sound, like a, like a, a sound of a violent wind. You know when you, you get that and you're kind of whistling through your house? It's, it's multiplied by ten. You're not feeling it, but you, you're hearing this sound. And then... Imagine then there's this free-floating, massive tongue of fire just kind of hovering. Imagine it now. It's hovering above you right now, just this, this, this tongue of fire. And then it begins to separate and begins to sit on the person's next to you and the person's next to you and the person's next to you. Just, just put yourself in that place, this kind of weird, strange fire happening and the sound roaring. And then this amazing thing begins to happen. 
you begin to praise God. You can't help it. You do, it just erupts out of your mouth. You, you sing songs loudly. You pray bold prayers. You just begin to worship God. Can you imagine that? Just put yourself in that place right now. It could happen this morning. Who knows what could happen in the next few seconds? The Holy Spirit is our enabler. The next couple of verses from verse 5 tells us that there were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then. Devout pilgrims from all over the world. And when they heard the sound, they came on the run. So they didn't just potter along. They came running, wanting to find out what was happening. And then they heard, one after another, their own mother tongues being spoken. And they were thunderstruck. Now, when I read that in the message translation, and whatever word is used in your translation, I take it, they won't just go, oh, that's unusual. Oh, what's going on? It was like, whoa, what's happening? Oh. You know, it was that kind of moment. It was that kind of event. They were thunderstruck. And they couldn't, for the life of them, figure out what was going on. And they kept saying, aren't these Galileans? How come we're hearing them talk in our own various mother tongues? So, you're there. Not only have you heard the wind... Not only have you seen the flames and you've spoken in a language that you've never learned, now you're being understood by thousands of people out there on the street. They're understanding what you're saying. They're getting it. They're nodding their yeses and their noes. And they go, wow, how can you speaking the same language that I speak? And you probably understand them back. They hear you declaring because it's spontaneous. It's spontaneous. It's spontaneous. Thank you. Spontaneous. See, I'm so thunderstruck. It's spontaneous. And, 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 and you're praising him in their language. You're praising God in their language, not your own. The Holy Spirit is saying it's about reaching out to others. It's about helping them understand the mysteries of God, not just you hiding it in your little clique and corner. It's about praising God so that they begin to understand. And there's a strong message in that that is worthy of another preach, another day. Now, that'd be pretty wild, wouldn't it? If, if this happened right now. All right? That'd be, that'd be amazing. I mean, it would be cool. Would it not? Absolutely. But the question I've got to ask, I've got to ask another question. Why would God do it that way? Why, why do it that way? And the answer could be that he wanted to do something that would, attack, that would catch the attention of the crowd. He wanted to do something so spectacular. It would be something that they would remember for a very long time. And we're still remembering it 2,000 years later. In fact, God was so intent on this particular event that he even prophesied 800 years previously by a guy called Joel, who is a, a prophet in the Bible, and a prophet is someone who declares the will of God to others. And Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, is now known as an apostle, says in, in verse 16, this is what the prophet Joel announced would happen. The wind, the flames, the tongues of fire, the, the speaking in different languages, they're all just kind of window dressing for the real message that God wanted to get across that day. Because once God's crowd got the crowd's attention, this same Peter gets up and begins to preach. Now, when he's preaching, there is no wind, and there is no flames, and there's no speaking in tongues. 
It's just this wild and powerful sermon that does more than those spectacles could ever accomplish on their own. The signs and wonders point towards the main message, that the big thing, the whole point, the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter preached a powerful message. And this message was comprised, I think, of four major components. And the first was, God sent Jesus to mankind. Let's read it from verse 22 in the, in the same chapter. Fellow Israelites, listen carefully to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man thoroughly accredited, to you, uh, accredited by God to you, the miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him are common knowledge. Second, not only had God sent Jesus to them, but many in this crowd had put Jesus to death. From verse 23, this Jesus, following the deliberate and well-thought-out plan of God, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over to you. And you pinned him to the cross and killed him. Number three, not only had Jesus been sent to them, they had crucified him, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. Verse 24, but God untied the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. And that's a good thing. We could all smile. Excellent. And finally, number four, now Jesus is seated at the right hand of God to rule and reign. Verse 33, he's been raised to the heights at the right hand of God and receiving the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he poured out the spirit he had received. And this is what you see and hear. <clears throat> Throughout this simple but profound talk, Peter quoted prophecies from the Old Testament to, to prove his points. And you know, had he wanted, he could have been up there all day. <laughs> Because there are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. 300. And that's not even mentioning the, the imagery and the, the object lessons that God planted throughout the Old Testament that tells of who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. That was some pretty wild preaching, wasn't it? Simple, but profound. The signs and the wonders pointing the way. And you know what? Nothing... Nothing had been declared like it before because this wasn't just theology. And theology is about something about talking about the knowledge of God. This was a declaration that God had done something different. God had stepped down out of heaven, stripped himself of his deity, that is, his godly attributes. And it allowed himself to die on the cross for our sins, the bad, the evil part of us, which, which we can succumb to. And we do get tempted by. In fact, this was such a wild and powerful message that when two other guys in the New Testament part of the Bible, uh, Paul and Silas, preached in a place called Thessalonica, many people complained, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And that incidentally is from Acts 17 verse 6. And that's from the New King's translation, King James translation of the Bible. But the question I've got to ask now, it's always good to ask questions. Jesus did it. It's a, good, it's a good thing. Ask questions. Find things out. Consider. Because the question I'm going to ask now is, what is it about the message that convinced the folks in Thessalonica that the world is the wrong side up? 
And I would suggest that actually through the preaching and sharing of this good news of Jesus Christ, that the world actually begins to align itself correctly. And as hearts and minds are changed, the world flips back to the way that he originally intended it to be. That's what it means about turning this world upside down. You're just turning it the right way up. Let's not be satisfied, folks, with a world that is upside down. Let's not be satisfied. Let's get it inside out and all that kind of crazy stuff. Let's do it together, and we can, because we're the church empowered by his spirit. But you know what? There's one thing in this gospel, this this good news, that never sits well with some folks. And you read about it in Acts 2, 36. And Peter declared, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So some of the guys listening that day had crucified Jesus. In fact, this was the repeated message for for Peter and for Paul and for any other person who preaches it today. Jesus died, and you put him on the cross. I put him on the cross. That's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? But it's the truth. Because there is good news. There's a reason it's called good news. It gets better. But let me just focus on this for a moment. It was so much a part of the message that the Sanhedrin, that's the kind of Jewish leaders, got angry about it. They said to Peter and James in Acts 5, verse 28, We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. He said, Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The gospel message is this it's really simple. This is the gospel message. You and I are sinners. We deserve to go to hell. Again, whatever that means for you, whether it's an absence from God or it's an annihilation, whatever it is, we deserve to go to hell. But Jesus died in our place. He died because of our sins. Our sins put him on the cross. Past, present, and future. And do you know what, folks? That's offensive, isn't it? It feels offensive. Now, you're saying yes and amen because you know what happens. You know the good news. You know, ultimately, what it means for us that Jesus died on the cross. But for folks out there, for folks who don't yet know Jesus, when you tell him your sins put somebody on the cross and he died a gruesome death for you, they'd be like, get out of town. I'm cool. I've got it all together. I don't need anybody else. They don't recognize that. They don't see it. And they'll be offended by you. That is the message of the cross. In the 1830s, there was a famous U.S. evangelist, and that's somebody whose who's big calling is to teach the church how to reach others with this love of Jesus. And this evangelist is called Peter Cartwright. And one day, when, when the president of the U.S., Andrew Jackson, went to the church, uh, uh, church elders of the day, and that they warned the preacher not to offend the president. Because you see, back in those days, in the 1830s, The president could seriously influence the denomination, and the elders of that church had no desire to have President Jackson angry at them. So they insisted that Cartwright, this evangelist, mustn't offend President Jackson. So he got up to speak, did Cartwright, and the first words out of his mouth were these. I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here this morning. I've been requested to be very guarded in my remarks. Let me say this. 
Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent of his sin. <laughs> Could you imagine saying that to folks and being that blunt, that in quotes offensive? <laughs> the entire congregation gasped in shock. That's no way to talk about with the President of the United States. But after the service, Andrew Jackson met the preacher at the door and he looked at him directly in the eye and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could conquer the world. <laughs> wow. Jackson was impressed. But why? Because he just heard the preacher speak the truth to him, as nobody had ever done before. He might have been the president of the United States, but he still needs Jesus. He still needed Jesus. And it's a wild preaching because it's a wild message. But let's come back to Peter and this amazing talk, this sermon that he gives. So remind me, when did, preacher, when did Peter preach this sermon? When did he preach it? Pentecost. And Pentecost, as we heard earlier from Alan, means 50th because it's a special holy day observed by the Jews 50 days after the Passover which is a festival celebrating Jewish liberation from Egypt. Yeah. Let me ask you another question. How many people responded to, to Peter's sermon? How many, were, how many repented and were baptized? How many? 3,000. 3, Around 3,000. And you know what? This is the, the last Pentecost festival that is recorded in Scripture. We need a little table for next week, I think. And if there was a last Pentecost, there's got to have been a first Pentecost, hasn't there? That's <laughs> logical, isn't it? And the first Pentecost would have been 50 days after what? The first Passover, yeah, absolutely. Israel celebrated their first Passover feast in Egypt before they were liberated from slavery. So if Israel was leaving Egypt the day after they celebrated the first Passover... Where do you think they were 50 days later? They were at the mountain of God. And when they arrived at that mountain, Moses went up and he got the Ten Commandments. But when he came down, he discovered that the Israel had made a golden calf to worship. And they were apparently engaged in certain behaviors that were offensive. God's mad. Moses is mad. And, and, and he, he's so mad, he breaks these tablets, these Ten Commandments. And he storms into the camp, and he, he gets hold of these, this golden calf, and, and he grinds it to a powder. I'd love to have seen that, how he did that. But then he puts it in the camp's drinking supply and commands the people to drink it. Moses said to them, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the tribe of Levi come to him. Essentially, Moses says this to them, go strap on your swords, boys, because we're going to go clean house. And you can look that up in Exodus 32, verse 28. And now you know what they did then? Something that you'll probably find offensive? They went and killed all who refused to repent. All those who were worshipping false gods and doing offensive things. Sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Well, I thought it sounded a bit harsh. I think there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that sound a bit harsh. And I wish I could rub them out, but I can't. But we have to then work out why are they there? What are they saying to us? How do we see Jesus in that? Yeah. 
Don't just ignore it. Look into it because I want to tell you something here. Something that I think is really important. Guess how many people died around the first Pentecost? 3,000. And how many were saved at the last Pentecost? 3,000. Do you think that's a coincidence? That, that it's stated in Scripture in such a way? I, I could be pulling up straws. I could be. But I don't think I am. I think God left that in for us so that we could see the marvel and, and the intricacy of his word. And in that simple truth, God drove home the truth that he revealed to us in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6. The letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. But wait, there's more. Not only was the message wild, and the results were wild, so was the invitation. There was an offer made at the end of the message that was unlike anything anyone had ever heard before. Think about this. Think about it for a minute again. Imagine you're in the crowd. Again, put yourself back there. But now think, you are also in the crowd that called for Jesus to be crucified. You were there when the Pharisees, again, the Jewish leaders, and the chief priests whipped the crowd into a frenzy. And your voice joined the others and you demanded, crucify him, crucify him. And you said it over and over again and again and again. And now, now you find out that you were party to the execution of the Messiah, the Son of God. Think about that. You've killed the Son of God. What do you think God would do about that? I mean, if somebody killed your son or daughter, what would you want to be done? There's some honest answers going off in people's heads. You'd want, you'd want some kind of revenge. You would. We don't want to act on that, and, we, and we, we pull on God and say, God, help me, but you'd want that. Now, Jesus told a parable in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 41. He said this. He said, there was a landover who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. And the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then the other servants, then he sent other servants to him more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. And last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. Let's take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. A wretched end. He's going to kill them because that's what they deserved. Now, these folks at Pentecost, they've killed God. They've killed the Son of God. What do you think they deserved? Coming back to Acts 2, verse 37, it says, Cut to the quick. Those who, were, those who were listening asked Peter 
and the other apostles. Brothers, brothers, so now what do we do? In fact, they didn't say it like that. They said it like this. Brothers, brothers, so now, now what do we do? They've been convicted by the Spirit. They wanted more. The simple, profound words of what had been preached has entered into their hearts and their minds, and they want to know, what do we do? And Peter's reply is so wildly simple and direct and undeserved that many people can't believe it. This is what he said. Peter said, change your life. Turn to God. Be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins are then forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Just got to repent. Just admit that you're a sinner and you don't want to live a life like that anymore. That's it. That's all there is. Get baptized. And when I start talking about baptism, I'm talking about full immersion in water. And again, that's another preach from another time. But that's all it is. Because Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just their fault and ours. It's actually God's plan. It goes on to say, This Jesus, following the deliberate and well-thought-out plan of God, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over to you, and you pinned him to a cross and killed him. But let me just say this again. Following the deliberate and well-thought-out plan of God. Your sins and mine may have been the reason that Jesus was nailed to the cross. But it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't have been for God's plan and purpose for him to be there. The idea that God would so freely forgive us is hard for many to understand. It just seems such an easy solution. But you know, once people are confronted by this story of a blood-stained saviour, that is so important, that is so eternal, that is so simple but profound. It can change lives forever. It really, really can. How many here came to faith you know, from leading a life that wasn't so great? I mean, there's a number of people that were probably born into a Christian household and you had a bit of a helping hand, but you still had to make a decision. But there's some of us who had an even more dramatic conversion to make from one life to another. And we did it, and why did we do it? Because Jesus forgives. And we now live in that forgiveness. So I'm saying to you today, let today not just be another Sunday. Let it not be just another, another day of the week. And I want to say to you that if, if there is anybody who doesn't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today is a day where you can make a difference in your life. And you can see your world tipped back up. But if you've never been baptized, you may have been baptized in the, spirit, uh, in the water, but if you've never been baptized in the Spirit, you've never felt the, the power of God in your life in a real and powerful way, let this be the day that you're filled and refilled with this amazing power that we've read about. And we thank God for the birth of His church all those years ago at Pentecost. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say sorry. We give second chances to anyone. 
and we also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. We give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we, we love. love.